Hello, everyone, and welcome to this exciting brand new episode of Vodka O'Clock Podcast. I'm your host, Amber Love from AmberUnmasked.com. And thank you to the Patreon backers who keep things like this going. They also get the weekly cat detective stories, and they get uh, copies of my books and, um, you know, all sorts of other treats. Now there are tiers for... um, special options like getting the Winchester Nabu Detective Agency logo sticker and the print, the mini print of Gus. So um, you can find a lot at amberonmass.com for all of that information. Joining me today for the first time, I can't believe it, but I'm so excited, is Pat Shand, a comics writer that I've known um, from Twitter for many, many years. (laughs) So we are finally connecting Pat, thank you so much for being here. Thank you. I'm, yeah, I'm ha- I'm happy to be here. Uh, I ha- have indeed wanted to meet for a while, and here we go. Yes, I was blown away by your previous work on Breathless. I it it was such a a shocking story since it's been out for a while. I just wanted to give a little uh, you know spoiler alert here if you haven't read it. Um, because I wondered, looking at, I remember one of the cover images was an asthma inhaler with like splattered blood around. So I was thinking, okay, well, this is like got some sort of medical sci-fi thing. And then as I get into it and there, yeah, there's some sci-fi, all right. (laughs) (laughs) And big, big pharma conspiracies. I was like, oh man, this is amazing. This is, it was one, the characters were wonderful. I really enjoyed it. That's awesome. Thank you. Yeah, it's um, it it doesn't feel like it's been that long since Breathless, but it has. You know, it's um, know. yeah, it's crazy to think that that a couple of years have passed. Um, because uh, a lot of the inspiration that uh that went into the book, I still go through now. You know, um, the the opening scene deals with uh Scout having a hard time getting her inhaler through the pharmacy, and you know that's just one aspect. It's, it feels like every month introduces a new, a new obstacle to get what I need to breathe. And that, um, yeah, that was the core breathless, uh, turning, um, a real life horror story into what we kind of know as a horror story. Yeah. And certainly, you know, whether, I don't know where people are listening from, but you've heard the stories of what it's like in the U S healthcare system that, you know, medicines can cost a thousand dollars a month and, you know, you need them to live. So it's, you know, not an option. I know people, they try to, I've personally tried to, you ration out your stuff and you do with lower doses than you're supposed to be taking, or you go, you skip a day um, just because, you know, you need to. And that's just terrible. Yeah. I've done that. I've done the thing where I'll, I'll take one of my breathing pills and, and I'll bite that thing in half, you know? Um, yes. <laughs> uh, and I mean, one of the most recent ones that this is one, this was an obstacle I never really predicted. Um, I had a new pharmacy. I went to pick up my medication and they didn't have a certain, uh, my not rescue inhaler, but, but my daily inhaler. And they recommended um, this other option because they had it on st- in stock and I could just go home with it. So I went home with it. It quickly didn't work. And then when mm-hmm. I went to get my regular one, it was a huge problem because I, I already had the equivalent and um, it was a huge problem. Oh, that's terrible. That's so terrible. 
Um, so it's um, it's amazing though that you can you know you had the creativity um, other than just you know like the rest of us we go on Twitter and you know we lash out and we get furious, but you you turned that into this interesting sci-fi story and you know sort of like you know we'll get into destiny inc which we're going to talk about mostly but um just how real life stuff ends up um finding some just like the seeds you know not necessarily the roots but like the seeds of stories yeah definitely that's um that is what i tend to mine in my work i actually started out um before even comics, I was doing plays. Um, I, I was doing short plays and one-act plays here in New York. And uh, they, well, what I would do was just find situations in my life that I could turn into a, a story for a short while and do that. And then I found in comics that um, there tends to be uh, be more interest sales-wise if there's a genre element. So for a while, you know, I was trying to... Um, uh, combine those two, you know, take take something that matters to me that happens in my life, turn that into a narrative and put a little genre twist on there. But I've also now been experimenting with not doing a genre twist and just telling a, you know, a, a straight drama too is interesting to me. And that's, you know, that's a great segue into this Destiny New York compilation. You know, you've got the, this massive series Um and when I had first heard about it, like, I, I just did not realize how many issues y- you had. So I w- was very grateful that you, you know, we were able to connect and um, I could take a look at it because um, you've got all of these, you know, you've got the volumes, the, the standard um, graphic novel volumes, and you've got collaborators that you tapped into for these wonderful vignette backstories on characters. Like you just get these looks into each character's little life and uh, this little part of their lives and, you know, maybe find more sympathy for them or, you know, maybe realize what was really going on. And it's, it's so cool because, you know, that's why I love anthologies. I, you know, any chance I get to be in an anthology, I love you just get all of these, these different talents together and coordinating. So um, was that always a plan from the beginning with, with this? Uh, no, you know, at first it wasn't because um, uh, at first I was going a bit more of a traditional route in that uh, I, I, I thought of the idea fresh off of my, uh, my exclusive contract at Zenoscope. I was at the company for a while uh, like f- five or six years, and just um, most of, I mean, all of my writing for that time was e- exclusively there. Uh, so I was at the end of that, and I was thinking of ideas to pitch around to publishers. And one of those was this: I uh, I pitched it to IDW, to Image, uh, to Oni, and you know there was a little traction here and there, but it didn't work out. But the, the original pitch was a, a traditional uh, five-issue miniseries with, with hopes for more, you know? Um, and then when I brought it to Kickstarter, I was thinking of ways to, you know, sort of uh, lean into the idea that uh, 
people will come to support indie artists. And I was like, how can I get more people involved in this book in a creative way? And my first thought was, of course, prints. You know, people like prints, people like pins. But I was on some level also scared to um, produce things that I hadn't produced before because I wanted to be sure that I could deliver and wanted to get a bit more um, more experienced doing a book on my own and doing kind of like low-key things like prints on my own before moving on to like pins and buttons and shirts. Um, so I was like, the way that I can get people involved in the book w- without having to make a whole line of merch is to have them actually be involved in the physical book. And that's what made me think of short stories. And um, uh, yeah, I just wanted to keep bringing in, because p- part of what I did at Zenoscope was uh, find writers whose voices I liked and wanted to uh, see brought into comics. I, I wanted to do that with my books as well, because um, one thing that I loved about uh, my, my career uh, attraction was that comics came to me as a surprise. And I fell in love with the uh, art form in a way that I could have never predicted. So my hope was to do the same thing. Like with uh, volume one, you can see that um, uh, two of the creators, uh, we have uh, Tanya Everett, who is a playwright. We have Katie Kuffel, who is a musician, a lyricist. I brought them in to bring this non-comics perspective into a comics world and I helped shape the scripts and turn it into a comic. But we really um, started those. I mean, Katie wrote, wrote a poem, and we turned that poem into a comic, into a visual poem. And Tanya wrote essentially what was a prose short story that we then together broke down into comic scripts. So it, it was very interesting to me to um, to get a non-comics perspective because so so much of my roots is is in theater, is in hearing the dialogue aloud. And that has helped me. So I want to see that with other people too. And not not only theater, but also people who are in film, who are in novels. It's always interesting to me when people, you know, try to do it all and just have that general love uh, for fiction and, and not just comics. We did a similar approach with the, I say we, I was a, I was merely one of the 150 writers on the project um, for Insider Art, which was a huge anthology. Shelley Bond was the, you know, lead publisher and, and um, she had a team of editors that put together the sections and there, they were not afraid to pull in people that were unknown or people that had never done comics and they just liked their work from whatever other format and they you know they were willing to team us all up together and find the right you know the right vibes and and it came out really cool yeah that kind of stuff I love because I'm not sure if people would agree because I know that there's also this thing um there is because comics has been and is kind of less now, but it's been this very niche thing, you know, it's been this thing that people have loved, that people have been, you know, grew up in the 80s and 90s and been called dorks for, you know, uh, it's this thing that people feel defensive of. And there's just always this fear that people are writing uh, comics just in hopes for it to become a film. 
But I think that also there is that, you know, there's this kind of like untapped um, potential in someone who is coming to comics from an outside perspective, because we have, we already have the inside, you know, we, um, if you read Marvel and DC comics, those are, those are largely written by people who grew up reading and loving Marvel and DC comics, you know? Um, and you can see when someone brings in something kind of new, like, uh, for example, like if you read a, a Jeff Johns book, you can tell that his inspiration when he's writing Green Lantern is other Green Lantern books. But I wanted to bring in a perspective that is just non-comics, but that I think would fit well in comics, if that makes sense. Oh, yeah. I, I think it's, I think because it's such a collaborative medium anyway, where you have, you have different kinds of visual arts, and, and that can go many different ways. There's obviously so many different styles and approaches to that. And, uh, you know, different writers, I've, I've seen things where they, um, I'm not sure, in fact, I think you might have done it too, where in a flashback, they just put a whole new team into a flashback sequence. Um, I don't know if big publishers do that for the sake of time, or, or if they're like, no, we really want this to look a certain way, other than just saying, okay, tell the colorist to make this all brown sepia <laughs> you know? oh yeah like I mean, how, how, how do we know it's a flashback <laughs> that's actually that's so funny that you say that that that's one thing that um back when i was editing i think it was a book uh for unleashed um this was this uh, event that i did at zenoscope um we were doing this thing where uh we had the modern story and then we had this story that we were kind of interweaving that was from centuries ago and um Every time I would see sepia, I'd be like, that, "That's it, it's too easy, you know. It's it, it, it's <laughs> too easy. Let, let's do some kind of um, visual cue." But the truth is that with with comics, it's hard, you know. S sometimes you yeah. need sepia because when you have uh, the full experience of television, it's just and not not to say it's easy to make good television or or good movies because it, it's hard in many different kinds of ways but the musical cues the lighting just the text on the exactly. screen so much can just be a, a very helpful cue when in comics you you're sticking to one or two cues that you can use you know yeah like and and wandavision is having a great time playing with that i don't know if you've caught up on that or if you have the, the disney app um WandaVision starts off in a 1950s black and white and then it, like each scene goes up a, a, another generation and you see Wanda and Vision and their environments in the 60s and then in, in the 70s they're in color and, you know, and they, they could tell because when they were in the black and white one, if something showed up in color, it meant there was like, you know, a glitch in the matrix, like what was going on, kind of like Pleasantville. That's interesting to me. Yeah, I, I haven't seen it yet, but it's um, I'm doing a podcast on it pretty soon. So it's definitely on my to watch ASAP list. <laughs> yeah, it's it's interesting and weird. And I love um, 
I love Elizabeth Olsen as uh, as Wanda. And it's funny because uh, uh, there's one point where they're like, so does she have like a weird nickname or something? And they say no. And I'm yelling. I'm like, Scarlet Witch, Scarlet <laughs> Witch. <laughs> um, but uh, so let's get back to to Destiny. And um, is it formerly Destiny New York? The, yeah. yeah. OK. And so speaking of black and white, you've taken all of these um, at least all, all that I've seen, the volumes, um, you've opted for black and white. And yeah. I was curious if that was uh, an intention uh, visually or if it was just because of print costing a fortune. Because the based on the artists, it looks like like they knew and they they adapted, you know, how to how to really work in, in grayscale. It might not be something if you're giving out assignments like, okay, well, here's the pencil or here's the ink or here's the color. Like it, it might not work nearly as well, right. um, but this looks like it was cohesive from, from the beginning. It's, it's a mix, you know, um, we did uh, the first issue of the entire series, just the first um, 20 to 22 pages we did with the intention to color. And in fact, we have uh, five colored pages from our uh, pitch, but um, we only had that first issue drawn. And then when we didn't get it picked up, we decided to go to Kickstarter. Um, it very quickly went from um, a color single issue series to a uh, black and white graphic novel. And it is, it is for the price reason but um, the truth is, though, um, if, if Manuel, who did volume one, if he hadn't been able to draw um, issue one in that grayscale style, that, that really set the tone for the whole series. Um, that would have made me make the choice to have it in color, which would have been a totally different game. You know, like um, the lack of color has it's given us the room to work within a certain budget and to produce these, these longer volumes. I think what we would have seen if, if I had chosen to do color would be um, uh, much shorter volumes because right now, um, and, and what I choose to do is, is too long anyway. It, it's what I want to do creatively, but just it is objectively insane for me to be doing uh, 200 page volumes annually on Kickstarter as an indie comic. It, it's it's uh, mm. not uh, financially advisable, but I'm doing it, and <laughs> because it it's just what I love to do, and it's um I try to make sense of it because it is our most successful book, but it's still you know it's a financial commitment to be doing these long long volumes. Uh, so I think that the impact is that. Um, the lack of color allows us to do more because my my goal was to give a large piece of story every year. And I think that um, uh, having color um, limits the option time-wise, but mostly price-wise. So it, it does come down to price, but looking at how um, at how later volumes came out, I realized, and it didn't really help me in my career in general, that um, while I love color for certain stories, um, I don't think it's a need 
for all stories, I um, I, I think since kickstarting uh, Volume One, I've done just under twenty campaigns, and uh, two of those have, have had color. We did Afterglow with full color, uh, just because we even planned to do black and white, but then um, we we being my editor Shannon and I had, had this conversation about uh, the artist Kaylin Smith. Uh, her colors were just so so vibrant, and the story um, had an element that was about color. So we made the call that this one needs to be in color. And then um, we did Spooky Girls, which is um, a uh, young adult book, and it made sense to have that one in, in color as well. Oh, and as I'm talking, I'm realizing that we, we also did Clonsters, which is an all, all ages book in color. Um, but the other books, um, this is Modern Dread, uh, the series Prison Witch. Uh, Cherry Gilbert, Gangster Esperista, Now Thirsty, all those books, to me, are perfect as is in color, and it, it feels almost like this challenge, like, um, I, I hate the word brand, uh, but it does feel like it's part of part of what I do, that I, that I produce these comics that are black and white in a time when that isn't the most uh, in vogue thing. It's, you know, it's just something that I, I think some people get used to. And, um, you know, if they're so used to the color, it might be a shock. But I'm used to either way. Like, I'm totally game for it. And when I saw Manuel uh, Pertano's, if that's, I'm sorry if that's how you pronounce it, um, if I'm getting that wrong. But when I saw his work yeah. going through the, the first volume, uh, I was like, damn like there's the the gray shading work and like the he does some of the like those really fine dots and textures it all works so well that you know there's I don't feel like there's anything missing and he does um you know and of course I have to mention the black cat Brody in it Um, (laughs) Yeah, um, I, I'm a cat man, you know? Yep, so Gus is staring at me right now because he's like, woman, why aren't we going out for a walk yet? And uh, I'm like, Gus, take, you know, mommy's working. I mean, uh, I, 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 on my end, I had to make the call to feed my cats early because if I didn't, it would have been a problem to the podcast. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. So, um, so, yeah, so when I was going through and I'm like, Oh, Manuel's work is so great. And then, uh, at those backup stories, I was like, Hmm, what's going to go on here? Because the, you have these introduction pages that are pretty cool that I'm not sure if this was a, if you brought in a designer specifically or who did this for you, um, where, it's the title page. So it's like these banners of, you know, this is Lilith's story and this is who worked on it. And we've got the credits for the next story, um, Joe's Epic Weekend and, and whatnot. And then each one of those stories will have a different team. Um, So it's like, it's amazing to me that when people are not doing, uh, and it's, we kind of have to, pick on it and point it out but when you're not doing a a big two superhero book or just any superhero book that I can so easily tell who these characters are because the artwork isn't meant to be generic 
Yeah, 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 definitely. So moving from one story to the next, even with the different artists on board, I'm like, yeah, I know who that is. I, you know. Yeah, and that um, that also comes down to um, you know, so many of the artists that I did choose were artists that I, you know, I either worked with before or knew their style well enough to know that they would that they would fit into the world well. And um, you know, there are artists that I have um, I have talked to about doing a short or or doing a spinoff or even a whole volume, and sometimes um sometimes the the style doesn't fit you know like um i i had one conversation with an artist um just there is this mixture of um i want artists to do their own style while also having the characters feel like the characters and sometimes there just isn't a mix there you know where an artist um if they draw a character that is in their style it sometimes doesn't translate to looking like our characters but I love to ride that line where we have these artists who who are very different, you know. Um, I mean, especially in in volume two, we have I think it was eight short stories, and my goal was to have uh, the styles be even more various and more different than in in volume one. And um, it it was super fun to see uh, the characters in those different styles, and I, I think that we have managed to have them all look like they are in the same world and they are the same character, even though they don't necessarily always uh, look drawn the same, if that makes sense. Yeah. Because it's not something that you could do if it was something like, let's say, and you know, a cartoon on TV, like it has to, it would have to absolutely match. Right. Um, And it's, and it's interesting though, where even if it is a single creator, like comic strips, I was, you know, I was a, really into comic strips as a kid and you know they would eventually collect those into little trade paperbacks so my grandfather always had them we always had a ton of them and you could see like the original way Garfield was drawn and like how it it, and and Snoopy like how it progressed and then you know found this particular fit and it's like okay that's what garfield is now yeah yeah. oh for sure (laughs) for sure um so when did you decide um like you mentioned kickstarter a bunch here so the reason that that this came back onto my radar though was from a press release from black mask and Black Mass Studios is like so great. They put out great work. Um, so, what's the relationship there, and how uh, you know how do we go from Kickstarter to um, this great small press operation? Well, it's uh, it's been a long running thing. Me trying to get work at Black Mask. Um, uh, Black Mask is run by a guy named Matt Pizzolo, and um, he one he makes great books. You know, uh, that's what drew me to Black Mask at first was um, I saw my friend um, uh, he goes by ML Miller now back then he was Mark Miller um, Mark uh, is not he, he was, he's known for his work at Ain't It Cool Press and he at the time was also working um, with me on a jungle book adaptation through Xenoscope and um, I saw he was doing this creator owned book Pirouette through Black Mask and I was very taken by it and how 
how it was a book that I think that most publishers wouldn't um, wouldn't know what to do with in some ways. It it was it felt more unique than so much of what I was seeing at the time. It felt daring, and I was like, "What publisher? What publisher was cool enough to support this book? Because this yeah, book really. <laughs> is it's it seems like a book that is." It's great in a way that can't be can't be summarized in an elevator pitch. It's it's uniquely good, and that's the kind of book that I want to read. So I started looking more into what they were doing, and I started feeling the same way about multiple books that were coming after them. And um, I met uh, Matt at this party, and you know, it was this New York Comic Con party, and it, I don't I don't like those. You know, I I feel like when I go to those things. I, it's this mess of just messy networking and it doesn't feel, it doesn't feel genuine, right? You have to yell just to (laughs) to even be heard. It's so hard. Do you ever? And I actually remember this is a weird little anecdote, but um, at the time I felt, I felt very unembraced by the industry because, you know, I, I was working for Zenoscope and I felt that the books that I was doing were were largely being embraced by the readers and misunderstood by other pros. Like they thought the books were something that they weren't. And um, my first ever moment of feeling accepted actually by an industry pro whose work I loved was at that same party. Um, I was outdoors and, and I was hearing this uh, guy kind of like, um, have a debate that was not the most respectful with Jim Zub, and I was just like, "Oh no!" <laughs> kind of like Loki hearing this, like th- this guy, like was just d- dismissing this point that Jim Zub was making, and, and, and I was just thinking, "I gotta get out of here, dude." But then uh, Cena Grace, whose work I loved, asked me if I was Pat, and I said, "Yeah." And he goes, "It's nice to meet you. I, I know that you." from online and I, I like what you post and he hugged me and I was just like, man, that is. He's no- an amazing talent. Yeah. Oh my God. He really is. I'm an actual fan of his work and no one, no other pro really at, at that point who I wasn't in a professional uh, uh, situation with, like, you know, I, I had been embraced by the, the Zenoscope guys, by Raven Gregory, by Ralph Tedesco, Joe Brescia, but Cena was the first person who, whose work I had known as a fan who was like, hello, welcome. You you are part of this. And that felt awesome to me. Um, but to bring it back around to, to uh, Black Mask, um, uh, that party to me, I thought was a, a total networking bust. But then the following year, I went to uh, Matt from Black Mask's uh, table and just wanted to say, hi, I'm Pat Shand. And I said that to him. He said, I know, we, we met last year. And I was like, you remember that at that party where I had to, as you said, scream to even say hi? And he he did. And it was... That's it impressive. Was, it was very impressive. Yeah. And I, I again, you know, like, I mean, it, it feels like corny to say, but I think because I've been like told by society that it's corny to, uh, to be um, outright vulnerable about your place in an industry, you know, that it, it, it's kind of like... Um, I don't know, but I felt, 
I felt seen in that way. You know, I was like, damn, you, you remembered that meeting and then you knew enough about me to be like, oh, that's that writer I met at this specific party and that writer writes this title. And that I hadn't really experienced before. And that was, it stuck in my head as, oh, not only does Matt produce these incredible books where the creator clearly gets to do something unique, but he is attentive and he is someone who is respectful enough of creators and not even a hot creator, not someone who is, who is a big name, but someone who is, I mean, at the time, especially very, very green, just very new. And he, he had that respect that I hadn't really experienced elsewhere, if I'm being real. And, um, at that point I was like, wow, I, I have to work for black mask. And, um, it was a lot of talking, checking in uh, a couple of years of pitching, you know, uh, there was one pitch meeting that was just, it, it was a nightmare. I, uh, I, I pitched to Matt on the floor of New York comic-con and, um, a, a, uh, uh, not sober gentleman, an inebriated guy, uh, kind of bumped into us and oh, threw no. threw up on the floor and fainted, <gasps> and in the middle of, of my pitch meeting, and like and Matt like cracked into action. He was like, "Get this guy help!" And I was like, "Damn, dude, right here, you know." Uh, um, but yeah, so uh, so so that happened, and then that didn't work out at all for me. So. Uh, about a year elapsed and I was just thinking, man, like black mask, it's, it's probably going to be a wash for me. Like if, if Matt were interested in any of my ideas, he would have reached out by now. And then about a year after that, uh, uh, drunk incident with that guy, um, Matt DM me on Twitter and asked if I had any ideas. And I said, yeah. And I pitched just like one liners for 20 ideas. And he, he said, I, I like these three. L- let's just do them. And it was um, Breathless, uh, Snapflash Hustle, which was my next series after Breathless, and this uh, third title that is greenlit, but we haven't done yet. Um, so yeah, he just, in one fell swoop, just took three titles. And then um, the working relationship was so good that as as I did those books, um, Matt began to take an interest in my career outside of Black Mask. And he's been uh, helping me, um, you know, push certain things in Hollywood. And that is what, um, in him helping me in that way, uh, is when he and I began to pair on Destiny New York and talk about doing it as a single issue series. And that was a pretty long story, but that's the truth. That's my tale, you know? But that, you know, I think it's a brilliant story in that it, it wasn't as easy as people think. It wasn't, oh, you sent an email with a one-page summary and maybe three sample pages or whatever, and you heard back, yeah, this is great, let's do it. Oh, yeah. You know, and I, and I, think, I think there's, because we don't hear the variety of, of what the industry goes through, you just and a lot of people are have this way of like keeping everything secret. Yeah. Like they, I'm not one of those people. I don't usually do that. I'm like, Oh, I just sent in this pitch. <laughs> like, and, um, 
you know, other people are just like, they don't talk about something until everything's like good and going and ready to be announced. Oh, like, for sure. Yeah. So the, the behind the scenes of, uh, of how long the process is can, I think, open some eyes. And then, as you said, like Kickstarter is not an overnight thing either. Um, how, how many pages do you typically have done by the time you take something to Kickstarter? You know, it's, um, it's a mix to me. I think it kind of depends on the concept. Um, my goal with destiny New York at first was, um, you know, we have, uh, in launching the Kickstarter, uh, it was for volume one. And I, I already had that first full issue produced and lettered as part of our uh, pitch. So my idea at first was to give an entire piece of the story, have a lettered portion of, of a story um, when I go on Kickstarter. But that um, that ended up quickly being not financially feasible to me because I, um, I always like to make sure that my entire team uh, gets paid for what they do um, when they've done it latest often before they've done it to me you know um and i you know the the truth is that kickstarter has been for me a way to fund the book and not turn a profit on the book The, the idea is to you know any extra money i make i just buy more stock so we can sell the book for forever um and uh and yeah, so I don't really keep any of the money that, that we make on campaigns. So there's not that much made to help fund uh, future little uh, pieces of art for future campaigns. So what I tend to do is this. Um, say if a book is, is j- just my last Kickstarter was this book that uh, my wife Amy and I are writing called Thirsty. And uh, Thirsty is an anthology with four stories. So my, my idea was, since it's a pretty short book, what, what I want people to see is a sample of each artist. So I had one page commission per story and went from there. Um, where a more ongoing thing, like she and, I, she and I also do this book called Prison Witch, where it's an ongoing narrative. So with that, that I need a bit more pages because people are going to want to see um, – see the characters interact, see, see a bit about what the focus is there. So that book is less about showing the art styles and more about uh, showing how one artist can do multiple pages. Uh, so that I'll commission more of. Um, and then with Destiny in New York, which is a much longer story, um, that I'll have to, because of the length, because it's a, a 200 or so page book that I'll have to have more of just, just to, you know, just to show uh, various scenes, because if someone goes on a Kickstarter page and sees, sees pretty much just a a scene in pages from a 200 page book, there's a a lot less um, shown about what the book's about. So I do tend to um, commission more pages before the Kickstarter based on how long the book is going to be. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, because like even like volume two, two, you know, is like 200 pages. Um, and you, you had a switch in the artist the, the at this point, yes. uh, Rosie, Rosie Comp. Is it, is it pronounced Comp? 
I think. I, I think. See, I, I heard Rosie pronounce it once because uh, we did this video where uh, she spoke about working on the book. And um, I believe it's Rosie Champion. Oh, okay. So I'm like way, way off. No, I mean, okay. I, I was um, too. I was the, too. Um, the, there's umlauts on the A. So I was like, I'm going to see if my, you know, interpretation is at all anything. But um, but Manuel was back for the chapter breaks and you've maintained um, consistent lettering with Jim Campbell and yes. also design and editing with Shannon Lee. So um I did want to make sure that that we mentioned how great Jim Campbell's work has been. Um, oh, Jim! Jim is rocking oh, all of this. Jim is an absolute G. Jim has made my life easy in so so many ways that I mean I can't even begin. I, I met Jim. Um, he was working for Zenoscope too. You know, he was working on so many of their titles, and um, he. Uh, you know, like I said, I came into comics as a not comics guy, so my notes to him were probably nightmarish. So he, he he's helped me learn. You know, he's helped me learn, and um, I I owe a lot to Jim as a writer, as a person, and and just the quality of work that he produces is just incredible. That's great, and um, and like Rosie, like there's you know, there's usually something about an artist that, that I find like is, you know, particularly breathtaking. And with this character, Logan, um, we're talking about magical girls here. Destiny is part of Destiny University yes. in New York. So Logan is a student at this magical school um, because she had a prophecy. So it's all about magical people who have had who have prophecies to either fulfill or, you know, Logan's stuck in this, like she already did her prophecy. Now what, the, what, yeah. um, but her powers are still very strange. And she goes to this other realm that she calls the blue. So that was another reason that I thought it was interesting to have black and white art because it's clearly like a watery realm that that Logan goes to everybody's yeah. hair is flowing and you know it looks like it would if you were underwater and um Rosie's work like they just look like you know beautiful sea mermaids ish you know like everything that you'd expect with the like I said the beautiful hair flowing yeah um it's just gorgeous Thank and yet, it's yeah. since it's not underwater, it's a very weird world too. Like you know, you see weird shit. Yeah, you know what's <laughs> funny is, um, I actually, <laughs> I mean, it, it's probably gonna sound crazy. I've never thought about how we don't see that realm's color, but yet, well, we call it the blue. That that's funny. Um, but yeah, I think that you're right. You know, the artists have managed to convey how that world would look in real life, even though they haven't had that touch of color. Hmm. Yeah, you just, you feel it. Um, and like I said, like, you know, the fabrics of their outfits move fluidly and, um, you know, and they're very exaggerated. Like when we see Song, who is basically the antagonist up through the points that I've reached. I, like I said, I'm in, in volume three right now. So Song is is an antagonist character. Yeah. Um, 
So even when Song appears, like her, you know, the fabric of her gown is really elongated, you know, like people do with Batman's cape. You know, it's just really out there. Um, but something that I, I wanted to talk about when we, when we come to defining who the characters and their roles are, we have Lilith, um, that at first, when we first meet her, we're like, I personally, I had an, uh, oh, she's the one that's going to be trouble. You know, like she's, I was expecting like, she's the one who's going to be the villain. She's, oh no, now Logan's met her. Okay. So we, now we have the meeting and she's going to, you know, and especially with a name like Lilith, I'm like, okay, which way is Pat going with this? And, um, so Logan and, and Lilith do end up in a relationship together. Um, very gay book. Very gay. <laughs> very oh yeah, gay. for sure, for sure, for sure. For Super sure. gay book. It's wonderful. Um, but you know, so reading through one and two, I was like, oh, Logan is clearly like you know the the main character, and we do get to see Lilith's life and her sister Song because Song's the antagonist. But then, then we it, we sort of shift, and it's more like Logan's in California. And now we're focusing on Lilith and all of the friends that remained back in New York. Yeah. So, um, you know, when you're plotting this out, was there, was there something where you, you said, okay, we need to move away from Logan at this point and make Lilith the, the protagonist? Or was it always intended to be like Lilith's show? It's just, took a while to get there it's um the intention is always for it to be both of them um because in volume three uh volume three was a, a hard one to kind of decide what to do as far as format because i i always had this idea but how i could present it was was kind of um kind of uh undecided what we did was this um you know volumes one and two are from logan's perspective and then volume three um, is is a divided perspective. You have act one, which is chapters one through four, is Lilith in New York. Um, act two, chapters five through eight, is Logan in California. Um, and having those two acts, I almost did two separate books where I had um, uh, volume three in New York, volume four in California, and then volume five would continue the series as as we know it. But I didn't want to be away from Logan for that long. So, and I didn't want the reader to be away from Logan for that long. Because with volume three, when you read it, it presents an entire story. And you see it kind of like bounce back and forth in certain ways. Like um, uh, the end of chapter two... Um, something happens between two characters that we see uh, the other side of in chapter uh, six. So it is meant to be read as one whole. So I decided to just present it that way, you know, and not leave people waiting. Um, But on that note though, about Logan, um, uh, she, she will always be the main perspective. uh, But the idea too was to, to always be kind of like expanding out. Like um, in volume one, we did it kind of like literally where it, Logan is someone who 
we enter the scene with her and then we can kind of like move through her wake to, to, to the uh, wake she makes as she leaves the scene. Like for example, um, uh, in volume one, we meet the, the characters, uh, Joe Rollins, Cherry Gilbert and Mary Bett. We meet them uh, when Logan passes them. And w- when she passes them by, that is our in into them. And then we stay with them. With Augustus. Yeah, that was interesting. I have to say, I was just like, it was, it, it was like one of those uh, like high school dramas or college drama type things. I was just like, oh, and I can see the TV like in my head, like, how the director would have done that. Yeah, you know that that's exactly what we wanted to do. Um, I was actually inspired by um, there was this scene in uh, Strangers in Paradise where um, uh one of the characters goes into a, a uh, store and they meet the uh, clerk just by, just by buying something. And when they leave, there's an entire scene with that shop owner. And and I was just like, what if we did that? But that person who was in that scene remains a main character for the entire series. And just, we, we used Logan as not only a main character, but as a way to meet other people, like um, uh, another example too is that uh, her her coworker Augustine, you know, we meet him through Logan, and then right, I, and he's very important. He's, he's very important. Yeah, I didn't want him to just be be a friend. I wanted immediately. We see, I think, um, maybe three scenes with him, three short scenes, and then I was like, all right, so he's been a supporting character. Now it's time for him to become a main character. So we just went home with him and we had the little arc with him and his husband that pays off in the end. But the idea is always that as soon as someone feels like they're just a supporting character in a different character's life, that person then has to be a, a lead immediately because there's no, in real life, there's no supporting characters. You know, we, we, we have to see right. every character as a fully realized character. And I love that about uh, the bagel shop owner Wally. Um, that's I, that's his name, right? I'm, ho- I'm hoping. Oh, yeah. right. Yes. Um, it, it, like he and Lilith have this relationship that's very strong, and it's like because she's a regular, but when you've worked retail, especially doing things like coffee, and you see the same people every day. Um, you do get protective, like it's your home turf and, you know, and Wally uh, may not, you know, like he may not open up. It takes him a long, long time to open up. But meanwhile, deep in his heart, like he, like Lilith is not just some customer and that's, it's such a beautiful story that comes out with them. Um, but I figured, Logan, um, I wanted to talk a little bit about this design uh, bef- before I have to let you go, um, because the the logo on the, the cover and, um, you know, within the title pages where it says Destiny New York, um, the I has three dots over it. And when I first saw that, I was like, what the heck is that about? And then, it's, you know, I'm going a few pages in and I'm like, oh, isn't that clever? Um, that Logan has these birthmarks going on her cheek. And so I didn't know if that was something you did or Jim did or how, how you got to that, but it was just like so subtle and clever and adorable. 
Th- thank you. Yeah, that was. Um, I mean, it's hard to look back and see who started what, but um, uh, the logo and the birthmark, I believe, started uh, from Manuel. Um, and what I thought of it was, as soon as I saw it, I was like, "Wow, the two birthmarks and Logan's eye form an ellipsis," and that. Mm-hmm. To, to me, does epitomize the series in many ways, you know? And um, and we just ran with it. And it's funny that, um, you know, uh, you, you are right in calling it a birthmark. So many people assume tattoo. But yeah, it, it is a birthmark. And I think um, we created, um, because we, we, we have the character uh, Joe Rollins, who has on his head what he passes off as a scar, but what he, right. he reveals later on, it's a tattoo that he got so he can tell these lies. Um, it is kind of like the, the dichotomy of Logan has this birthmark that is re- related in some way to her life, to, um, to a symbol of her life. Whereas uh, Joe, who, who in another version of this kind of story would be pitted as, as the main character, you know, he, he is like the stereotypical main character. He, He's longing to be the main character very much. Oh, he sure is. Uh, he has, he has that mark that, that is, is not a genuine reflection of himself. Um, but also w- with Joe, for example, um, Joe is someone who, um, he was kind of hard to, to make him into a lead because the, the, the idea with Joe was, um, and more honestly, the the joke with Joe is that th- this person who who in this version of the story that that, that we've seen before, you know, the uh, magical school, this guy, you know, that's the lead that you expect. And in this book, he's the least likely to be the lead. Um, but my theme with the book is also to have the characters who who are small supporting characters eventually become a lead. So with him, it was very interesting to figure out how to make that happen in a way um, where, where it made a statement about this kind of character um, rather than lean into what people would expect in this kind of a story. So when you're doing this type of character development, what's your writing process? Do you do like, you know, have files of index cards or corkboards or Scrivener? What do you, you know, what is your, the, the way that you actually work? It is a lot of, um, it's a lot of just writing an MS word as far as the literal side of it. But on the other side, it's just a lot of, it's a lot in my head, you know, it's a lot of spending time in my head and just thinking about the characters. And it, it is, with this kind of a story, um, more so than Breathless, because Breathless, um, Breathless more had a mission statement. Like with Breathless, I do love the characters, and it was my, my goal was to make it a character-driven story. But also, the theme of Breathless is that um, in a society where um, where your survival is monetized, how can how can that not demean and take meaning away from life and death especially from the people who this is being done to um so everything that happened in breathless was in service of that theme 
Whereas with Destiny New York, since I'm spending so long with the book and I'm spending so long with the characters, um, my mode of writing is to always be thinking about it and to always be falling in love with the characters in new ways. Um, and I think about it all the time. You know, like I'll, I'll, Honestly, I'll just think about a character and what they've gone through and, and where they can go, and, and I'll shape it in my head slowly, slowly over time that way. And then finally, I'll um, I'll write it like a, a a beat sheet for a volume, and then I'll move things around for a long, long time, and then one day I'll just write it. There you go. That's awesome. It, I mean, it, to live in your head that long. And keep things organized is really impressive. I, I have to have things like, you know, notes on stuff everywhere. Um, I usually try to keep things organized in Scrivener. Um, but at the same time, I'm like, if I'm sitting in bed and something comes, I'm like, okay, I better write this down in my notebook so I don't forget about it. Because <laughs> oh, yeah. otherwise, yeah. I will forget about it. <laughs> I mean, I am that way with certain things for sure, for sure. Um, with, uh, like, for example... Um, there are things that are set in stone that, that I thought of earlier on. Like um, for volume four, for example, there's a thing that um, uh, uh, was going to happen with Joe. And if it would have just, I could have outlined that in depth from the start and it would have been a certain way, but then living with it over time, um, it became this, thing that was tied deeply to Lilith and this thing um, uh, that morphed into into a whole new way to explore the characters and a whole new direction to take um, the main relationships in the book that um, that happened as a result of me letting that plot beat live and and letting myself do the problem solving of how to get there and what to do with it later on. Yeah. Sometimes um, you have to, you know, as I say, you have to start at the end and yeah. And, and figure it out. And um, you know, especially cause I, I try to write mysteries the most and I'm like, okay, I don't usually, I don't always know who did it. And the, you know, it's like, who do I, you know, I want to have this person, you know, this situation of, of, you know, murder, mayhem, crime, heist, whatever it is. And it's like, but now who do I want to have done it? <laughs> you know, um, And you got to find that, that key and make it all fit together. Yeah. So in, vo in volume three, there's a couple of artists as well. I just want to mention Elisa. It looks like Ramboli and Carola Borelli. Yeah. Yeah. Um, they, they came on board. Um, and again, like the artwork, even though it's new, it's still, you know, fantastic to just be able to look at and say, yeah, that's clearly Lilith. And, um, and this is where we get more into um the manny story that i said is fantastic um thank you but you have um you do have even though it seems like you know it's girl drama and stuff there's the big bad we have a senator 
Um, yes, 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 yes. That's that's actually the big bad here. So even though I, as I said, when I was reading through volume one, and I was like, oh, you know, it's not Lilith; it's her sister, um, Song, but it's not really Song either. It's you know, there's this senator lurking around and you know, pulling some strings and and whatnot. So if you like having political intrigue involved, um, keep you know. Don't don't give up after volume one because it gets um, a little quirky. Oh yeah, and, and there's um, I feel um, you know, my idea is that when when you read volume one, you for sure end the book with an idea of what the series is going to be. And um, my hope in writing this in New York is to to as that as the series goes along to to change what people think they know the series is while while never violating what they want the series to be you know it will always um have the romance in it it'll always have that element as if not the main thing a absolute number two or number one B main thing. Cause like the volumes, they, they'll have different focuses. You know, I, I intend on telling multiple uh, different long running main storylines. Um, like for example, um, volume one, you know, it is a, uh, it's very much a meet cute with some magical gangster elements, you know? And um, then yeah, the gangster <laughs> girls, the <laughs> Yeah, they are funny. I love them, you know. And um, and then volume two is um, is just more of a a kind of like lived in romance. And as we go along, I want the book to take different shapes, um, and I want the 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 reader to feel um, you know, there's a comfort I think in um in Logan and Lilith as the leads, you know, they will always, always be the leads. That is the constant in the book. But I like the idea that as we go along, there's going to be also a comfort in um, spending time with and meeting other characters and having storylines shift back and forth. Like, um, I know I shouldn't do this, but I do sometimes um, less uh, press, but more, more Goodreads, I will read reviews. I, I, I want to see what people, just people who on the street, people just, p- people like me who just read books and love books are are thinking. Um, so I will read reviews. And one that I saw um, uh, was, it mentioned that uh, in volume two, Anthony, uh, who was very prominent in volume one, got sidelined. And I was just like, I mean, we plan on going for, for a decade, you know, like he's not, he's not sidelined. He's just this portion of this story. That's going to run for, for a lifetime, you know, for these characters. He's, he's a bit less active in this portion, but he's going to, he's going to have major, major stuff. And that's, um, that's what I think that comics readers in some ways, um, are used to having a story end very quickly. We have um, this kind of like idea that a story is going to last, especially an, an indie comic story, will run for 
at most three volumes, but probably more closely like four issues these days, you know? Um, so there's this like idea that if you have one arc that doesn't focus on what you want the book to be, that it's going to not, not meet your expectations of what the series is. But I hope that as Destiny New York goes on, pe- people can see that what I want to do isn't just focus on one thing, but rather build the entire lives of these characters for as long as I can. Yeah. And that's, you know, it's robust. Like you said, people that might be expecting anything from like a, a mini series or at least an arc to, you know, up to six issues, they expect everything to be wrapped up, but then they feel like, Oh, something's lacking. Oh, this character didn't get enough. But, um, I saw that in an indie that became very, very maligned uh, because of the creator, um, but in Maneaters, um, which I loved. I thought it, I loved the book, and it was through Image, and, and um, because the creator had a bit of a hot temp- temper, um, the writer in particular, I mean, not the art team. Um, but by the end of the story I think if people had stuck with it I think they actually would have been pretty happy but because there was so much publicly that had you know had to all do with how the writer was interfacing with the public people just banned the like they just stopped the book they just stopped reading and didn't give it another shot um I wanted to keep going and, and seeing what was happening. And I actually thought it was great by the end. Um, it, it filled in something for me, like bitch planet just seemed to like drop off because the, um, they got, I guess, too busy with other stuff, yeah. but um, it filled the bitch planet void for me yeah. and, um, and actually felt like it had an ending. So I was like, Oh, I, you know, I felt satisfied that way. So like you're saying, when you've got something that's planned to be very long, um, your favorite character might come back. You know, like if you think of this, the, the Sandless, the Sandman Endless series, I mean, that's enormous. Yeah. You know, and you know, Delirium's my favorite. She's not always there. She's, you know? <laughs> yeah. yeah. And I, I, I like that, you know, I like the idea that, something can be dynamic. It can shift and move. And um, yeah. And plus I also, um, I struggle with the idea just just to get back to uh, what you were saying about um, uh, the the writer on man eaters, you know, I am, I'm not a big fan of, of social media. And I think that a lot of the problems there was, and not to get into anything too controversial, but the, the, the truth is that it is social media is something that can expose someone's ignorance about something. And mm-hmm. I think that it's a weird place when, you know, it, it, it's a hard place to learn something publicly. Do, do you know what I mean? And it, yeah. it's a hard place to get kind of like, caught not knowing something and then if you don't have a the the right answer right away because the thing is it's 
it, it, it's hard for some people to be wrong about something and to be wrong publicly is this whole thing. I think that we're very much in, in this transitional phase where we haven't really realized that, you know, people are flawed and say stupid, stupid things sometimes, you know, and social media, it can happen to any of us. And I, I, I don't even remember what happened that, I don't remember what she said, but I also do fear like there's a lot that I don't know. You know, like what, what if I say something that's so dumb on social media and I would like to think that I, I would take it back. You know, that if, if I said something yeah. wrong and that if I see that it's wrong and find out that I would take it back immediately and just say, Hey, I'm sorry. I was wrong. My bad. But also People have egos and it's just, it's just a weird, weird, dangerous place. You know, it's something that I personally, uh, my, my method of dealing is to use less of it because I don't want to have that experience where, where I say something that I, I, that I don't even mean and someone ends up not liking my book anymore. You know, that, that's a nightmare to me. And that, that's, that, that's not me saying that that, that's what happened with her. I, I, I don't know. I don't have any recollection of what the controversy was. But it's just like it's... there were several. <laughs> there, was, yeah. there wasn't even one thing. There were several. But I mean, it, Bitch Planet went through a similar thing where you know after the first issue, people were saying, "Where are the trans characters?" And it's like, um, could you give it a second? You know? <laughs> yeah. I mean, the the truth is, like, there, there are questions like that where I I wouldn't even know how to answer. Like, I, my answer is always is always. Read, read the book and you'll see but some people would take that as like a taunt when really like yeah. the truth is like as an artist i don't want to talk about the book i want you to read the book and have your experience with it and if you don't like it or you find it wanting then that's your opinion about the book it's hard for me as someone who wants to not give my commentary to be on social and to have that kind of experience because the truth is that i to that question I could literally answer, oh, in volume two, chapter one. But mm-hmm. but at the same time, I don't I want the experience to be so pure that I don't do that. But I know that some people want that. So it's this weird kind of like give and take where, you know, I want to help people and I want to give an answer to questions like that specifically. But at the same time, I also don't want to be on Twitter.com at all. You know, I, I wanna have these apps not at all, you know? But right now they have to replace our convention experiences. It's true. It's true. It's true. Um, So speaking of that, where can people find um, what's going on with Destiny New York? I know that, um, as we said, Black Mask is coming into play here. So what can people, where can people go to, to get these details? All right. So um, they can go to, as as far as uh, the Black Mask, uh, Destiny New York issue one. That's going to be, um, if you read the volume, you know, uh, it's that same story. It's uh, chapters, it's the prologue, chapters one and two from the from the volume. So it's this, it's going to be a big uh, double-sized first issue. Uh, and my quick pitch for it is that it is, um, it's the story of what happens after a fantasy ends. Um, it's about a girl named Logan McBride who had a prophecy made about her when she was young. Uh, she completes her destiny when she's 13, and now she's in her 30s trying to live a normal life and trying to figure out what to do next that can give her life meaning in a world that tells her that she's already done the most meaningful thing that, that she'll ever do. Um, 
And uh, that's going to be out in previews now. You can go to any local comic shop and you can order it through Diamond Previews. Um, and it's going to be a monthly ongoing series. And um, and yeah, just uh, tell them that it's from Black Mask Studios. And it is available uh, now. And the uh, final cutoff order is coming up very soon. Um, so yeah, uh, act quickly so you can pre-order and get those numbers in for number one. So the store knows to support numbers two, three, and so on. Because we can go on for a long, long time. Because right now, um, I have, as we were talking about, many volumes in the bank. Of volume, volume four is done right now. So I have more than 30 full issues. So this isn't a book that's going to run late. You know, we, we're done for a long time. That's great. And um, is there a digital option? Yes, and that's kind of <laughs> that's a bit more complicated because um, part of my deal was this. Uh, I see I see Destiny in New York as three possible readerships. We have the Kickstarter backers. We have um, the single issue in the comic shop readers, and then we have the audience that, as I've been kickstarting, I've been putting it out on as di- digital single issues through Comicsology. And part of my deal with Black Mask was that. I don't want those to be touched because um, there are people who read those monthly and I, I would hate for them to one day see that the series has stopped coming out in that uh, manner because they've been reading it that way the whole time. I wouldn't want them to just suddenly see that Black Mask is doing it and instead of the next issue being issue number 25, they have to read issue number one again. You know, that I didn't right. want. So I see them as separately. So you, you can read um, issues, I believe, one through 22 on Comixology now. Okay. Yeah. Well, that's great. And um, so uh, Black Mask Studios has obviously a web presence. Yes, If you don't yes. want to bother Pat Shand on Twitter, <laughs> you don't have to. Um but um, but that's great, and thank you so much for your time. And you've put together an, an incredible team uh, through each through each series. And thank you. Um, and I I love seeing all of your friends come in and and add to it as well. Uh, that I appreciate. And, and I will say, just um, not to dial back on what I said, but if you contact me on Twitter, I'm going to be gracious. You know, I, I I like the interaction, and there are. There are positive sides to social media. You know, like I'm on this podcast because of social media. I, some people I know who, who I am a big fan of and who I, who, who I value, I know through just social media. It's just that it's also this, um, this sort of like wild west, this intellectual wild west that we're still really figuring out how to, how to treat one another. And it's, um, it's a scary place to me, but as much as I, um, and kind of like turned off by certain interactions on, on social media, I also do in many ways value it. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's a, the, I'm the same way. I'm like, I can't live without it, um, you know, and and not only ge- geographically, but it's like that's I, – I, I like being a hermit and having my social life just – somewhere else oh, yeah. having having it uh, you know n- online and i can turn it off when i feel like it Definitely. um um so pat shand everybody go check out the the current work destiny new york and the 
upcoming work that that's going to be coming out past work as i said breathless was amazing um prison witch sounds great <laughs> um, thanks so much and you can back the show and my work at patreon.com slash Amber Unmasked. You can follow me on Twitter at Elizabeth Amber. If you want to see a ton of cat pictures, uh, go to Instagram at Amber Unmasked as well. And um, so thank you so much for listening. And it's uh, been great getting through another another year. Welcome to 2021. I at this point, I'm just amazed we're here. So so thank you so much, everyone, for, for being here.